Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my main man, partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? I'm feeling good, Foltz. How are you? I'm feeling good. I mean, it's been a while since we uh, have been back in the studio and uh, putting out a show. I'm, we had, what, vacations going on. I know you had family plans. I had family plans. I was in Florida for a couple weeks. You were down in... Uh, in maryland for a couple weeks with your family doing all kinds of different things and uh yeah but i mean we had said that on one of our last podcasts that we had put out that it's gonna be a little hiatus because we had to uh get back to some some family things and fun things and we had to step away but we're back and ready to fire at full force folks i don't know if i'm supposed to say this but happy birthday oh thank you very much yeah it was my birthday recently and uh uh, this today really was the first time I had seen Steve in a while. So he came bearing gifts, brought me a hat that I always liked that didn't think was in circulation anymore. And he brought me a great photo from uh, one of my favorite movies, Goodfellas. So if you've seen that one, it's the one with the old man where one dog's going this way, the other dog's going the other way. Yes. And the guy's like, what do you want from me? It's a huge influence for us, Goodfellas. So. Oh, yeah. Growing up, that was a great movie. But I have to say, being here in the studio today, getting ready to put out a show, the show that we are doing, is, in my opinion, is pretty awesome, and it's jam-packed with information. So you're going to need to open up your mind a little bit because uh, the trail that we go down can, uh, can get a little confusing if you let it. But if you hang with us, everything will be explained. And uh, I'm just excited and ready to go. It's been too long, and I'm ready to be back. I like the way that you said everything will be explained because it it is, in part, the theory of everything. Exactly. Exactly that. So we are doing, uh, obviously, based on the title, we're doing a show on uh, biocentrism. And uh, it's really complex, and it has a lot dealing with like consciousness. And um, if you've ever heard the phrase when somebody says, well, it is what it is, that's basically true in a sense, and that'll probably be better understood by you by the time we're done here. We do have a lot of information to go through, so we're not going to waste any time. Steve, do you want to kick off or you want me to kick off? Sure. Shonza with Bob Berman uh, created the article here, so a lot of information based off of their writing. The 21st century is predicted to be the century of biology. It's a shift from the previous century dominated by physics. It seems fitting then to begin the century by turning the universe outside in and unifying the foundations of science, not with imaginary strings that occupy equally imaginary unseen dimensions, but with a much simpler idea that is rife with so many shocking new perspectives that we are unlikely to ever see reality the same way again. I like the beginning of that. Yeah, they're kind of knocking string theory there. Yeah, I, yeah, I see what they're doing. But, you know, now keep in mind, we're just like we on all of our podcasts. We're just delivering information on different people's theories. This is a, you know, a, a, a uh, a compile of information that was put together by Robert Lanz and Bob Berman, and we're putting it into a podcast, sharing information. So you need to be make the judgment call. We're not saying that string theory is wrong, <clears throat> and we're not saying that this is right or wrong, but just hold on. It's yeah, because it, it's really cool. <coughs> In the past few decades, major puzzles of mainstream science have forced a reevaluation of nature of science and goes far beyond anything we could have imagined. 
A more accurate understanding of the world requires that we consider it biologically centered. It's a simple but amazing concept that biocentrism attempts to clarify. Life creates the universe instead of the other way around. Understanding this more fully yields answers to several long-held puzzles. This new model, combining physics and biology, instead of keeping them separate, and putting observers firmly into the equation, is called biocentrism. Its necessity is driven in part by the ongoing attempts to create an overarching view, a theory of everything. Such efforts have now stretched for decades, without much success except as a way of financially facilitating the careers of theoreticists and graduate students. Could the long-sought theory of everything be merely missing a component that was too close to have been noticed? Some of the thrill that came with the announcement that human genome has been mapped or the idea that we are close to understanding the Big Bang rests in our innate human desire for completeness and totality. But most of these comprehensive theories fail to take into account one crucial factor. We are creating them. It is the biological creature that fashions the stories that make our observations and that gives names to everything. And therein lies the great expanse of our oversight, that science has not confronted the one thing that is at once most familiar and most mysterious, consciousness. As Emerson wrote in his essay, Experience, that confronted the facile positivism of his age, we have learned that we do not see directly, but immediately and that we have no means of correcting these colored and distorting lenses which we are, or of computing the amount of their errors. Perhaps these subject lenses have a creative power. Perhaps there are no objects. I like that. And it's really, it always makes me think of, and I say to my kids all the time, I probably have mentioned this on other podcasts that have dealt in consciousness, <clears throat> but when looking upon something, if I'm looking at a rose, and so is um, so are my children, we all recognize that rose as as being the color red, but we'll never know if how I see red and they see red is the is the exact same. We just recognize it the same. You never know. I mean, what people see, you may be the only person on earth that sees it that way, but you've been quote unquote programmed to identify it as such. And also the vividness. You may see red in a much more vivid nature than someone else sees red. Right. And you have to, and, and obviously it's true in people that have either uh, just a little touch or severe uh, color blindness because you've, you, maybe you've seen the YouTube videos where they're trying to identify different objects and then someone gifts them with those awesome glasses where now they can actually see color. And to them, it's mind-blowing. So... I have not seen those videos. There's glasses that you can see color with now? Yeah, for the colorblind. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, just type that into a, a YouTube search. and <clears throat> They're really awesome, especially for some people that are you know, grandparents at the time, and they're gifted these by their grandkids for Christmas, and yeah, they're seeing color for their first time. It's awesome. I lived with someone who was colorblind, and they would bring socks out and say, are these the same colors? Right. It's really 
it's really a detriment. It really, you don't realize it until, uh, you I know. I guess you get those glasses and you see what you have been missing. I guess missing's the wrong term because it's not your fault, but what you're able to see now. Craziness. Yeah, so, but, you know, we deal in a muddy universe. For several centuries, starting roughly with the Renaissance, a single mindset about the construct of the cosmos has dominated scientific thought. Now, this model has brought us untold insights into the nature of the universe and countless applications that have transformed every aspect of our lives. But this model, failing us now in a myriad of ways, may be reaching the end of its useful life. The old model proposes that the universe was, until rather recently, a lifeless collection of particles bouncing against each other and obeying a predetermined rule that we're mysterious in their origin. The universe is presented as a watch that somehow wound itself and that allowing for a degree of quantum randomness will unwind in in a semi-predictable way. But there are many problems with the current paradigm, some obvious, others rarely mentioned, but just as fundamental. But the overarching problem involves life. Since its initial arising is still scientifically unknown process, even if the way it then changed forms can be apprehended using the Darwinian mechanisms. The bigger problem is that life contains consciousness, which is to say that at the least is poorly understood. Yeah, I would say that consciousness is poorly understood. I would think so too, because look where we were only at the inf- infancy of like artificial intelligence. So for, I, I would think that at the point of where we discussed in other podcasts, the singularity. Right. When the singularity hits, then that, I guess that would be consciousness within the machines, basically, because then they're, they're rationalizing. But it's still relative because even that consciousness would be life within a machine. That would be the machine's consciousness. Right. Just like when I get, I don't know if it was Google, but they put like two computers together to see what type of dialogue that they would talk about with uh, humans interacting with it. Well, what happened was, you know, too many people were putting vulgar and nasty things in. So these robots actually became like angry towards each other, the way that they spoke to each other. But the more incredible thing that ended up happening was the robots then decided to just change a language. They created their own language that only they understood. See, in there lies the scary part of AI because they do that. It's like the movie, uh, gosh, from probably the 90s called uh, Code Talkers, where during World War II, we brought in uh, Navajo Indians to interpret through our radios because unless you were born and raised Navajo, you you couldn't interpret that message. And the same happens with children. If you get two children uh, and you raise them together, they start to do the same exact thing where they have words for things and the parents don't even understand what they're talking about and nobody else does either, but they understand each other. Exactly. That's pretty cool. That is. Now, consciousness is not just an issue for biologists. It's a problem for physicists. There is nothing in modern physics that explains how a group of molecules in a brain creates consciousness. The beauty of a sunset, the taste of a delicious meal. Pardon me. These are all mysteries to science, which can sometimes pin down where in the brain sensations arise, but not how and why there is any subjective personal experience to begin with. And what's worse, nothing in science can explain how consciousness arose from matter. Our understanding of this most basic phenomenon is virtually nil. Interestingly, most models of physics do not even recognize this as a problem. 
But even putting aside the life and consciousness issues, the current model leaves much to be desired when it comes to explaining the fundamentals of the universe. The cosmos sprang out of nothingness 13.7 billion years ago in a titanic event labeled the Big Bang. We don't begin to understand where the Big Bang came from, even if we continually tinker with the details. Now, every theorist realizes in his bones that you can never get something from nothing, and that the Big Bang is no explanation at all for the origins of everything, but merely at best the partial description of a single event in a continuum that is probably timeless. Now, you can refer to the next segment as a scientific swamp. Steve, you want to take scientific swamp or you want me to do it? Uh, I'll hit it up right here. All right. So then, too, in the last few decades, there has been considerable discussion of a basic paradox in the construction of the universe. Why are the laws of physics exactly balanced for animal life to exist? There are over 200 physical parameters within the solar system and universe so exact that it strains credulity to propose that they are random. Even if that is exactly what the standard contemporary physicists boldly suggest. These fundamental constants of the universe, constants that are not predicted in any theory, all seem to be carefully chosen, often with great precision, to allow for the existence of life and of consciousness. We have absolutely no reasonable explanation for this. When it comes right down to it, today's science is amazingly good at figuring out how parts work. What eludes us is the big picture. We provide interim answers. We create exquisite new technologies from our ever-expanding knowledge of physical processes. We do badly in just one area, which unfortunately encompasses all of the bottom line issues. What is the nature of this thing we call reality? The universe as a whole. Any honest metaphorical summary of the current state of explaining the cosmos as a whole is a swamp. And this particular Everglade is one where alligators of common sense must be evaded at every turn. Some scientists insist that the theory of everything is just around the corner and then will essentially know it all. Any day now it's supposed to happen, and it may not happen until we better understand a critical component of the cosmos, a component that has been shunted out of the way because science doesn't know what to do with it. This consciousness is not a small item. It is not like anything else. Indeed, it is nothing like anything else. Consciousness, awareness, or perception, which in is an utter mystery, has somehow arisen from molecules and goo. And how did inert random bits of carbon ever morph into, you know, the guy that always wins the hot dog eating contest? In short, the attempt to explain the nature of the universe and its origins and its parameters and what is really going on requires an understanding of how the observer all our presence plays a role. At first, this may seem impossibly difficult, since much of our awareness or consciousness and certainly its origins are still mysterious. But as we shall see, we can use what we know and what we are increasingly discovering to formulate models of the cosmos that make sense for things for the very first time. I like that. You know, it's... We talk about, or, you know, the, the research here is, is showing that 
that we don't know what like what is man what is woman are we just you know made up atoms or and some scientists may try and explain it as well what we came from is whether the meteor that killed off the dinosaurs was full of bacteria and then that bacteria started you know and so on and so on through progression of life but and someone could just be like, stop them in the trap. Like, well, where did that meteor come from? Where did those microbes come from? What created that? And whatever created that, what created that? Is everything everything? And what? And what point have we gotten to? Really, like even at this point, at this point of consciousness, and we're aware of ourselves, but are we consciousness at the level that maybe? other species from other planets are are there is their consciousness at a level that we haven't gotten to yet or have we surpassed other people's conscious other species consciousnesses we haven't really interacted with any other species yet is that because our consciousness may seem elementary to them elementary and or barbaric because our right. species is just all they care about is war and possessions and who's trying to be better than the next and we're never going to get to uh, the next stage in evolution and, and probably joining the galactic empire that is out there until, until we get our heads out of uh, wanting to destroy each other, in my opinion anyway. So I love, I love finding these answers of where we came from, but uh, my, my true passion is where, where are we heading, where are we going? Yeah, and uh, that's, that's quite exciting, especially with Mr. Elon Musk uh, really ramping things up. It's really exciting. Yeah, it is. Tremendous human being right there. I mean, look, we'll just take a, a, a pause right here to talk about that. I mean, he just, I mean, they just had a, a, a segment out on Netflix, if you saw it, where four civilians were able to go into space and orbit Earth for three days at a higher altitude than any astronaut has in history, meaning they were higher than the International Space Station. So when they were looking out, they were actually able to see like the whole Earth from from the, the entire height diameter. Yep. And the pictures were amazing. Uh, completely amazing. And I totally would have done it had I been asked. I mean, obviously, the people that were chosen were amazing because of the things that they have did. Well, they were chosen as regular people. That was the thing. They were. I mean, but, but they were chosen for different reasons they they represented four different things and i forget what they were but wow if you get a chance check it out because i I'd do that in a heartbeat sounds amazing so okay so this next segment going back to biocentrism is uh i really like this part because this really goes into uh kind of what we were talking about earlier is what i'm seeing what you're seeing or what have you we call this the disappearing kitchen undeniably it is the biological creature that makes the observation and creates the theories. Our entire education system in all disciplines, the construction of our language, revolve around bottom line mindset that assumes a separate universe, quote unquote, out there, into which we have each individually arrived on a very temporary basis. It is further assumed that we can accurately perceive this as external pre-existing reality and play little or no role in its appearance. However, Starting in the 1920s, the results of experiments have shown just the opposite. The observer critically influences the outcome. An electron turns out to be both a particle and a wave. But how, and more importantly, where such a particle will be located remains dependent upon the very act of observation. 
This is perhaps the most vivid and famous two-hole experiment, which has been performed so many times with so many variations. It's conclusively, conclusively proven that if one watches a subatomic particle or a bit of light pass through slits on a barrier, it behaves like a particle and creates solid-looking hits behind the individual slits on the final barrier that measures the impacts. Like a tiny bullet, it logically passes through one or the other hole. But if scientists do not observe the trajectory of the particle, then it ex exhibits the behavior of waves that allow it to pass through both holes at the same time. Now, since then, the list of paradoxes and intractable problems has continued to grow, starting with those accompanying the Big Bang. For instance, how could the entire universe, the laws of nature themselves, pop out of nothingness? Two experiments during the past decade that show separate particles can influence each other instantaneously over great distances, as if they endowed with some kind of ESP. It works with light, too. When born together, pairs of photons are created in a special kind of crystal. Observing one member instantly influences the behavior of another, and if they are separated by enormous distances. They are intimately linked in a manner suggesting there's no space between them and no time influencing their behavior. So I just want to say that kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, CE5 or close encounters of the fifth kind, because uh, that's what that would be if you're trying to, with a group within your mind and your consciousness, contact a craft or some other type of uh, intelligence from either interstellar space or from another dimension, um, the practice of CE5 is that unification of a, everyone's consciousness working towards the same goal. Yes, it's a collective energy. It's a focused energy, focused thought in a group, and I've, I've witnessed it, uh, not, not particularly CE5, but I've witnessed group energy before, and it's a very real thing. Absolutely. And they also have similar experiments that have befuddled scientists for decades. Some of the greatest physicists have so impervious to metaphor, visualization, and language. Amazingly, if we accept life-created reality at face value, it all becomes simple and straightforward to understand. Take the seemingly undeniable logic that your kitchen is always present. Its contents, assuming they're there, are all familiar shapes and colors whether or not you are in it. But consider, the shapes, colors, and forms known as your kitchen are seen as they are solely because photons of light from the overhead ball bounce off various objects and then interact with your brain through a complex set of retinal and neural intermediaries. But on its own, light does not have any color, nor any brightness, nor any visual characteristics at all. It's merely an electrical and magnetic phenomenon. So while you may think that the kitchen as you remember it was quote-unquote there in your absence the unquestionable reality is that nothing remotely resembling what you can imagine could be present when a conscience is not interacting i love it right there it is yeah so i mean that gets pretty deep but uh like me and steve were talking about in the pre-show maybe a simpler way of explaining it would be the old if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it does it make a sound because what is sound sound is that tree hitting the ground creating a vibration that hits our inner ear creating a vibration that then we hear and we interpret as sound well if there's nothing there to pick up that vibration was there a sound simply like and if no one's in your kitchen looking at it does it exist and are, if we're looking at the same rose is that red the same as it is for you for me <clears throat> precisely now, quantum physics comes to a similar conclusion. At night, you click off the lights and leave for the bedroom. Of course, the kitchen is there, unseen, although at night, right? 
But in fact, the refrigerator, stove, and everything else are composed of shimmering swarm of matter and energy. The results of quantum physics, such as two split experiments, tell us that not a single one of those subatomic particles actually occupies a definite place. Rather, they exist as an, <clears throat> pardon me, a range of possibilities, as waves of probability. As the German physicist Max Born demonstrated back in 1926, they are statistical predictions. Nothing but a likely outcome. In fact, outside of that idea, nothing is there. If they are not being observed, they cannot be thought of as having any real existence, either duration or position in space. It is only in the presence of an observer. That is when you go back in to get a drink of water. That mind sets the scaffolding of these particles in place until it actually lays down the threads. They cannot be thought of as being either here or there or having an actual position or a physical reality. It's deep. <clears throat> it is. Now, indeed, it is here that biocentrism suggests a very different view of reality. Most people in out of sciences imagine the external world to exist on its own, with an appearance that more or less resembles what we are ourselves. See, humans or animal eyes, according to this view, are merely clear windows that accu accurately let the world in. If our personal window, window ceases to exist, as in death, or is painted black or opaque, as in blindness, that doesn't in any way alter the continued existence of the external reality or its supposed actual appearance. A tree is still there. A moon still shines, whether or not we are cognizant of it. They have independent existence. True. A dog may see an autumn maple solely in shades of gray, and an eagle may... <clears throat> perceive much greater detail among its leaves but most creatures basically apprehend the same visual real object which persists even if no eyes are upon it it is it is it really there issue is ancient and of course predates biocentrism biocentrism however explains why one view and not the other may be correct the converse is equally true once we fully understand that there is no independent external universe outside of biological existence, the rest, more or less, falls into place. So they're just taking something that's observable on a small scale, the two-slit experience, right, and making it into a macro or large scale, which is the existence of the entire universe without consciousness to uh, be aware of it. Right pretty cool yeah well, well why don't you try and help us figure out where is the university where's the universe and where exactly is that fridge from the kitchen you were just talking <laughs> right about? where is the universe even located start with everything that is currently being perceived the podcast you're listening to for example language and customs say that it all lies outside us in an external world, yet we've already seen that nothing can be perceived that is not already interacting with our consciousness. Since the perceived images are experientially real and not imaginary, it's a hard word there. Uh, yeah. Interacting with our consciousness. Since the perceived images are real and not imaginary, it must be physically happening in some location. Human phys physiology texts answer this without ambiguity. Although the eye and retina gather photons that deliver their payloads of bits of electromagnetic force, these are channeled through the heavy cords straight back until the actual perception of images themselves physically incur in the back of our brain. 
augmented by other nearby locations, in special sections that are as vast and labyrinthy as the hallways of the Milky Way. This, according to human physiology texts, is where the actual colors, shapes, and movements happen. This is where they are perceived. This is where they are cognizized. If you try to consciously access that luminous, energy-filled, visual part of the brain, it's easy. You're already effortlessly perceiving it with every glance you take. Custom says that we are what we see, and what we see is out there, outside of ourselves. And such a viewpoint is fine and necessary in terms of language and utility, as in Please pass the butter that's over there. But make no mistake, the butter itself only exists within our mind. It is the only place visual images are perceived and hence located. Explained in the language of biology, the brain turns impulses from our senses into an order and a sequence. As photons of light bounce off the butter, various combinations of of wavelengths enter our eye and deliver the force of trillions of atoms, arranged into an exquisite design of cells that rapidly fire into, into permutations too vast for any computer to calculate. Then, in the brain, this information which as we previously saw has no color by itself, appears as a yellow block of butter. Even its smell and texture are experienced in the mind alone. The butter is not out there, except by the convention of language. The same is true for all perceived objects, including the brain, cells, and even the electromagnetic events we detect with our instruments. Some may imagine that there are two worlds, one out there, and a separate one inside the skull. But the two worlds model is a myth. As we have seen, only one visual reality is extant. It is the one that requires consciousness in order to manifest. As Nobel physicist John Wheeler once said, no phenomenon is a real phenomenon until it is an observed phenomenon. Love that. A major handicap in adopting this new viewpoint is that language was created to work exclusively through symbolism and to divide nature into parts and actions. Even if well acquainted with the limitations and vagaries of language, we must be especially on guard against dismissing biocentrism too quickly. If it doesn't at first glance seem compatible with customary verbal constructions, the challenge here, alas, is to peer not just behind habitual ways of thinking, but to go beyond some of the tools of thinking processes themselves and to grasp the universe in a way that is at the same time simpler, but more demanding than we're accustomed to. Wow. That's saying that we don't even have the right words to describe biocentrism. Exactly. So is it gone for keeps? Quantum mechanics describes the tiny world of the atom and its constituents and their behavior with stunning if prob- <clears throat> stunning with accuracy. But the quantum mechanics in many ways threatens our absolute notions of space and time. When studying some atomic particles, the observer appears to alter and determine what is perceived. The presence of the method- methodology 
of the experimenter is hopelessly entangled with whatever he is attempting to observe and what results he gets. In 1964, Irish physicist John Bell proposed an experiment that could show if separate particles can influence each other instantaneously over great distances. First, it's necessary to create two bits of matter or light that share the same wave function using a special kind of crystal. Now, since quantum theory tells us that everything in nature has a particle nature and a wave nature, and that the object's behavior exists only as probabilities, no small object actually assumes a particular place or motion until its wave function collapses. What accomplishes this collapse? Messing with it in any way. Hitting it with a bit of light in order to take its picture would instantly do the job. But it became increasingly clear that any possible way the experimenter could take a look at the object would collapse the wave function. As more sophisticated experiments were devised, it became obvious that the mere knowledge in the experimenter's mind is sufficient sufficient to cause the wave function to collapse. If wave function of an entangled particle collapses, so will the others, even if they are separated by the width of the universe. This means that if only one particle is observed to have an upspin, the act of observation causes the other to instantly go from being a mere probability wave to an actual particle with the opposite spin. They are intimately linked, and in a way that acts as if there's no space between them and no time influencing their behavior. Experiments from 1997 to 2007 have shown that this indeed is the case, as if tiny objects created together are endowed with some kind of ESP. They truly seem to prove that Einstein's instance of locality, meaning that nothing can influence anything else at the subluminal speeds, is wrong. Rather, the entities we observe floating in the field, a field mind, biocentrism maintains, that is not limited by external space-time. Einstein theorized a century ago. No one should imagine that when biocentrism points to the quantum theory, As one of the major areas of support, it is just a single aspect of quantum phenomenon. Bell's theorem of 64, shown experimentally to be true over and over in the intervening years, does more than merely demolish all of Einstein's hopes that locality can be maintained. That's cool because of two things. One, Einstein, 100 years ago, is theorizing on this locality he's saying that everything is its own thing it's unique but now what we're doing is experimenting with two photons of light that may have been created at the same time separated by huge distances those huge distances don't matter those photons are acting the same way if one thing happens to one the other one happens to the other you know what that means that means this there could be teleportation in the future if you have one thing that's acting one way here that you have something that's acting the same exact way with a great distance away that could possibly lead not not anytime soon but could be the basis of teleportation right and I, and i think that maybe maybe it was at cern i think maybe they were able to um uh transport an atom maybe like a fraction of a centimeter so, I mean, it's getting there. They know what to do. They just have to figure it out on a grander scale. But, I mean, of course, I mean, I already believe that it's already possible. They already have this technology. I mean, we're, we're not prone to it. Like uh, Ben Rich said that used to run the Skunk Works, you know, we're 100 years advanced as far as technology than anybody could even comprehend. He said it might even drive you crazy. 
to even i mean he said star everything in star wars and star trek we've been there we've done that i was just thinking the same thing beam me up scotty yeah exactly. you know what that made me think of bill shatner going to space last week yeah he did but you know what props to him you know being able to finally get up there for being known as captain kirk his whole life but i think he was shortchanged. i mean look look what those four civilians got to see way more and he, spend way more time in space uh i think that um he was in suborbital orbit for a few minutes he went up 60 miles like elon said cute it's cute it was cool and then elon did come out afterwards and say to uh bezos it, it was cool that you sent Captain Kirk to space. Totally. I mean, nobody can deny that. He gave him a he gave him a nod. You know, told him it was cool. Well, I think his co-star, one of his co-stars, was giving him grief too, basically saying they're only sending you up there because you're an older, out of shape man, and they just want to study the effects of your body in like no gravity, zero gravity. Jeez. Like, can I get a congratulations? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're happy for me. I mean, come on, my gosh, we probably made each other rich together. <laughs> So, all right. Before Bell, it was still considered possible that local realism and objective independent universe could be the truth. Before Bell, many still clung to the millennium-old assumption that physical states exist before they are measured. Before Bell, it was still widely believed that particles have definite attributes and values independent of the act of measuring. And finally, thanks to Einstein's demonstration that no information can travel faster than light, it was assumed that observers are sufficiently far apart. A measurement by one has no effect on the measurement by the other. All of the above are now finished for keeps. As we saw earlier, the profound influence of the observer is also clear in the, in the famous two-hole experiment, which in turn goes straight to the core of quantum physics. If one watches a subatomic particle or a bit of light through a slit on the barrier, it behaves like a particle and logically passes through one or the other hole. But if the scientists do not observe the trajectory of the particle, then it exhibits the behavior of the waves that retain the right to exhibit all possibilities, including going through both holes at the same time, and then creating the kind of rippling pattern that only waves produce. These waves of probability are not waves of material, but rather statistical predictions. Outside of that idea, the wave is not there. From the beginning, Copenhagen adherents realized that nothing is real unless it's perceived. This makes perfect sense in biocentrism is reality. Otherwise, it's a total enigma. At present, the implications of these experiments are conveniently downplayed in the public mind because, until recently, quantum behavior was limited to the microscopic world. However, this has no basis in reason, and more importantly, it is starting to be challenged in laboratories all around the world. New experiments carried out with huge molecules called buckyballs, which we've talked about in the past. We have talked about buckyballs. The quantum reality extends into the macroscopic world we live in. KHC03 crystals exhibited quantum entanglement ridges a half inch high. Visible signs of behavior nudging into everyday levels of discernment. An exciting new experiment just has been proposed that would take this even further. Steve, tell us about the Goldilocks universe. The world appears to be designed for life. Not just the microscope scale of an atom, but at the level of the universe itself. Scientists have discovered that the universe has a long list of traits that make it appear as if everything it contains, from atoms to stars, was tailor-made just for us. 
If the Big Bang had been one part in a million more powerful, it would have rushed out too fast for galaxies and life to develop. Result would have been no us. If the strong nuclear force were decreased 2%, atomic nuclei wouldn't hold together, and plain vanilla hydrogen would be the only kind of atom in the universe. If the gravitational force were decreased by a hair, stars, including the sun, would not ignite. In fact, all of the universe's forces and constants are just as perfectly set up for atomic interactions. The existence of atoms and elements, planets, liquid water, and life. Tweak any of them, and we would have never existed. Many are calling this revelation the Goldilocks Principle. Because the, com- the cosmos is not to this, and it's not to that, but rather just right for life. At the moment, there are only four explanations for this mystery. One is to argue for incredible coincidence. Another is to say that God did that, which explains nothing even if it is true. The third is to invoke the anthropologic principles, reasoning that we must find these conditions if we are alive. Because what else could we find? The final option is biocentrism, pure and simple which explains how the universe is created by life. Obviously, no universe that doesn't allow for life could possibly exist. The universe and its parameters simply reflect the logic of the animal existence. No matter which logic one adopts, one has to come to the terms with the fact that we are living in a very peculiar cosmos. Biocentrism fits very neatly into the late physicist John Wheeler's participatory universe, his belief in which observers are required to bring the universe into existence. In short, you either have an astonishingly improbable coincidence revolving around the fact that the cosmos could have any properties but happens to have exactly the right ones for life, Or else you have exactly what must be seen if indeed the cosmos is biocentric. Wow. I mean, that that reminds me a lot of uh, the episode we did on Law of Attraction. And it basically saying, you know, what you perceive to be is life. That's true. Or you create the, you know, you can create your own life. Create your own surroundings. And also you create your own energy. And it goes to be shown every day. You can walk into a room and within the first second of being in that room, you change the energy of the entire room. Totally. And that's just like, uh, think about it. When you wake up in the morning and your alarm's going off, you got to go get up and go to work. And as soon as you get out of bed, you stub your toe and it, it hurts like hell and you just want to scream and, you know, and, and just be in a bad mood. Now, if you would continue to let that, Bad mood. I started off my day. Bad. Your day is just going to continuously get worse. You're going to be focused on that negative energy by the time you get into your kitchen that wasn't there until you got there. <laughs> and you make your coffee. Maybe it's going to overflow or you are out of the grounds or, or whatever. Then you get in your car. And now you're going to hit traffic. But if you would just take a second and be like, yeah, I hit my toe. It hurt like hell. I don't want to look because it's probably bleeding. But uh, I just need to change my mindset. And it could change the whole, the entire course of your entire day. I accept that I stubbed my toe. I'm not going to allow it to change the course of my day. I'm going to move on in a positive way from right here and now. And you do. 
That's right. And you, and you have to because, you know, simply, there's no time to lose. Since quantum theory increase, increasingly casts doubts out of the existence of time as we know it, let's head straight into the surprisingly ancient scientific issue. As irrelevant as it might first appear, the presence or absence of time is an important factor in any fundamental look into the nature of the cosmos. The reality of time has long been questioned by an odd alliance of philosophers and physicists. The former argue that the past exists only as ideas in the mind, which themselves are solely neuroelectrical events occurring strictly in the present moment. Physicists, for their part, find that all working models from Newton's laws through quantum mechanics have no need for time. When people speak of time, they're usually referring to change, but change is not the same thing as time. To measure anything's position precisely at any given instant is to lock in on the static frame of its motion, as in film. Conversely, as soon as you observe movement or momentum, you can't isolate a frame because momentum is in the summation of many frames. Sharpness in one parameter induces blurriness in another. To understand this, consider for a moment that you are watching a film of archery tournament. An archer shoots an arrow, and it flies. The camera follows the arrow's trajectory from the archer's bow towards the target. Suddenly, the projector stops on a single frame of a stilled arrow. You stare at the image of an arrow in mid-flight. Something you obviously could not do at real tournament, the pause in the film enables you to know the position of the arrow with great accuracy. It's just beyond the grandstand, 20 feet above the ground. But you have lost all information about its momentum. It is going nowhere. Its velocity is zero. Its path, its trajectory is no longer known. It's uncertain. It soon becomes apparent that such uncertainty is actually built into the fabric of reality. This makes perfect sense from a biocentric perspective. Time is the animal sense that animates events, the still frames of the world. Everything you perceive, even this podcast, is actively and repeatedly being reconstructed inside your head in an organized world of information. Time can be defined as summation of states. The same thing measured with our scientific instruments is called momentum. The weaving together of frames occurs in the mind. So what's real? We confront a here and now. If the next image is different from the last, then it's different, period. We can award the change with the word time, but that doesn't mean there's an actual invisible entity that forms a matrix or grid in which change occurs. That's just our own way of making sense of our tool of perception, which we watch our loved ones age and die and assume an external entity called time is responsible for the crime. The demotion of time from an actual reality to a mere subjective experience, a social convention, is evidence against the external universe mindset because the latter requires space and time grid work. In biocentrism, space and time are forms of animal understanding, period. They are tools of the mind and thus do not exist as external objects independent of life. When we feel that time has elapsed as when loved ones die, it it continues the human perception of the passage of existence of time. Our babies turn into adults. We age. They age. We all grow old together. That to us is time. It belongs with us. It reminds me of our construct of time uh, podcast that we've done together and that one was deep if you haven't heard the construct of time definitely check it out it goes way further into what Foltz was just talking about but time is 
definitely a human construct. It certainly is. And we may have mentioned this in that podcast, but I'm just going to mention it again now. Because time is a man-made thing, Steve and I are avid hunters during hunting season, and we hunt before daylight savings time, and we hunt after daylight saving time. We're the only one that need to adjust to the time. The deer are still coming out to feed at the same quote unquote <laughs> time, but they're just acting off instinct, and, and that's when they do it. We have to adjust our clocks in order to be there in time right it may say six on our clock next week it may say seven on our clock right their clock is always the same yeah the deer aren't thinking okay tomorrow we got to make sure that we get out there a little bit because they set their clocks back there's there's no deer saying to another deer hey we lose an hour this weekend yeah we better let's eat late let's go to sleep early (laughs) (laughs) space out yes space out there is a peculiar intangibility be intangibility about space. I love to talk about space. Of course. We cannot pick it up and bring it to the laboratory. This is because, like time, space is neither physical nor fundamentally real. It is a node, a mode of interpretation and understanding, part of an animal's mental software that molds sensations into multidimensional objects. In modern, everyday life, however, We've come to regard space as sort of a vast container that has no walls. In it, we cognize separate objects that were first learned and identified. These patterns are blocked out by thinking, by our thinking mind within boundaries of color, shape, and utility. Human language and ideation alone decide where the boundaries of one object end and where another begin. Currently, the disciplines of biology and physics and all their sub-branches are generally practiced by those with little knowledge of others. Multiple illusions and processes routinely impart a false view of space. Shall we count the ways? Certainly. One, empty space is in fact not empty. Two, Distances between objects can and do mutate depending on a multitude of conditions, like gravity and speed, so that no bedrock distance exists anywhere between anything and anything else. Three, quantum theory casts serious doubt about whether even distance individual items are truly separated at all. And four, we see separations between objects only because we have been conditioned and trained through language and convention to draw boundaries. Now, space and time illusions are certainly harmless. A problem only arises because by treating space as something physical, existing in itself, science imparts a completely wrong starting point for investigations into the nature of reality. In reality, there can be no break between the observer and the observed. If the two are split, the reality is gone. Space, like time, is not an object or a thing. Space and time are forms of our animal sense perception. We carry them around with us like turtles with shells. Thus, there is no absolute self-existing matrix in which physical events occur independent of life. I love it. 
So basically, I guess the last question that we need to ask is, well, where do we go from here? Well, biocentrism offers a springboard to make sense of aspects of biological and physical science, which are currently insensible. Natural areas of biocentric research include the realm of brain architecture and neuroscience and the nature of consciousness itself. Another is the ongoing research into AI or artificial intelligence. Though still in its infancy, few doubt that that this century, in which computer power and capabilities keep expanding geometrically, will eventually bring researchers to confront the problem in a serious way. A thinking device will need the same kind of algorithms for employing time and developing a sense of space that we enjoy. Finally, one must consider the endless ongoing attempts at creating grand, unified theories. Currently, such efforts in physics have typically stretched for decades without much success, incorporating the living universe and allowing the observer into the equation, as the late John Wheeler insists, is necessary. Will at minimum produce a fascinating amalgam of the living and non-living in a way that should make everything work better. It should provide stronger basis for solving some of the problems associated with quantum physics and the Big Bang accepting space and time as forums of animal sense perception rather than external physical objects offers a new way of understanding everything from the micro world to the forces constant and the laws that shape the universe currently the disciplines of biology and physics and all their sub-branches are generally practiced by those with little knowledge of the others without symbiosis between them attempts to unify the universe will remain a dead end symbiosis man symbiosis i mean everything is everything we're all energy whether you want to accept that or not we are energy basically experiencing you know uh, having a human experience inside of a a meat suit I, i will say this about consciousness and to be conscious you may think is to be self aware but it's it's way more than that consciousness is being aware of others as well. So when you're conscious, be conscious of someone else's consciousness. When you're around someone, make sure that you're paying attention to what's going on with them as well, or a group of people. Make sure that the people around you are conscious, that you're conscious of them, so that you guys can all take care of each other the way that you should be. People are so wrapped up in themselves that they're just walking by people and walking by others that may need them. So when you're out there and your consciousness of yourself, also be consciousness of others. Yeah, I mean, I think they said it best or the lines in the movie Avatar when they would say, I see you as a way of not only did I understand what you're saying, but I see you for who you are. And basically it's, it's a form of trust when they say that to each other. I see you. Right. I see you. I see deep inside you. I see your consciousness. I see if you're healthy. I see if you're sad. And if you are, I want to help you to get back to you, to being that you that you are deep inside. I want your consciousness to be healthy and to be out here. I want your energy to be good. We need to take care of each other. We need to pass on our consciousness and our energy to each other so that we can achieve better things together. Perfectly said. I mean, and so basically in a nutshell, treat everybody else like it's you living a different life. Yeah. I mean, we're all connected in some way in in this crazy 
blue ball that's spinning in the vastness, the vastness of, of quote-unquote nothingness, but at the same time everything. And I forget what astronaut it was that said it, but it was like if everybody could view the Earth from space, you would see it's just us for millions and millions of miles. So that should help us unify in being one people, the human race, versus going to war and fighting over <clears throat> money and oil and territory and ridiculousness. We need to evolve to the point where we're all aware, we all see each other, and we all are just one people. I love talking about biocentrism with you, folks. Absolutely. I loved it, too. I love being back in the studio. It was good. And uh, we're not going anywhere. There's not going to be any breaks coming up for a while. Uh, gosh, I would probably think until like Christmas even maybe. So stay tuned. We got a lot of jam-packed information. And I'm excited about it. You, Steve? I'm so excited. Me, too. Well, so on that note, until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye. <laughs>